Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, we are back. We're going to be discussing the books of Amos and Obadiah today. We're a little late recording this. It should still come out on time, but I've been sick for a few days, so you're going to notice that in my voice a little bit here. Christopher, how are you doing? Doing okay. Good. So... Amos and Obadiah, shorter books, shorter readings here. Amos, to me, as I was looking through commentary, realizing it is completely out of order chronologically, like other books, right? It doesn't seem like chronology came into play at all when putting Amos where it was, at least within the books that we have. Often that's not a consideration within the placement of books in the Old Testament, To me, that's always a thought because within our scriptural tradition, we've got the Book of Mormon, which largely focuses on a chronological progression, except for the Book of Ether, right? And then same kind of with the New Testament in some ways, even though the organization of the letters has to do with length more than chronology. But I don't know, that's just the way that I think in terms of a book, I'm thinking you want to go from the beginning to the end. And that's just not the way that these books that we're going through are ordered. And so I have to step back for a second. I have to say, okay, Amos, I'm just, you know, starting over. Let's just look at Amos for what it is. Amos actually is contemporary with Hosea and then Isaiah the first. And he might even have been a little before them. And so he could be the first in this long line of what we would call classical prophets that start from kind of the time of the division of the kingdoms all the way into the exile. And so these are the prophets that we get these maybe strange visions from, these pronouncements of doom or not just doom, but also of the gathering of the mercy and love of God as well. Again, these are going to include Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and, and all those others. Amos was someone who prophesied the conquest of the kingdom of Israel and then subsequently the kingdom of Judah, much like Isaiah did. This was a reading of the political situation of the time. Assyria was conquering and deporting and transplanting people all over that ancient world. And so the prophets kind of just saw the writing on the wall, so to speak, right? That Israel and Judah were kind of next in line for this. So they're, they're telling this to the people and telling them their wickedness is what is going to bring this about, or at the very least, their righteousness could potentially prevent it. In some cases, the prophets did say, hey, if you repent, then we can prevent this kind of thing. They don't always say that. Sometimes they just say it's going to happen regardless, right? That's Amos. That's Amos, exactly. But Amos's primary concern here is with the treatment of the poor. Now, this has been a theme with other prophets, but it's Amos's main focus. He does talk about worship of other gods, but he has, for a particular reason, a focus on how the rich have gotten rich at the expense of the poor. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. 
Yeah, there's a lot of repeated themes and, and statements within Amos that we've seen in, in previous prophets and books. And within human history. Amos describes himself as a herdsman, and then he says, a dresser of sycamore trees. Now, it's not a very helpful translation, I thought. So the commentary was more useful in this effect. Essentially, the sycamore tree talked about here has nothing to do with sycamore trees that we would see in the Americas, per se. This was a wild fig tree, and its fruit would have been a much smaller, inferior to the domesticated fig, obviously. Therefore, this was a tree whose fruit was gathered by the poor. And one of the things that they did was that they would gash the fruit and then wait for it to ripen. And that would make it ripen faster than it might otherwise and allow them to gather more. This was called dressing of the trees. So it was a way that you sort of took care, so to speak, or were able to gather fruit from these wild trees that weren't otherwise going to produce large enough fruit or enough fruit to feed people. And again, this was a practice among the poor, and this is one of the things that Amos did. And so this does place him within that poorer class and explains his affinity and his concern for the poor. I'm glad you explained what dressing fruit means, Ben. I would have read it wrong. I mean, maybe not as wrong as Amelia Bedelia, but <laughs> I, I might have read it wrong. You mean like decorating a Christmas tree or something? There's that, right? I, that did that image came to my mind, yeah. I was thinking too, I have to refrain from slashing open the Christmas tree ornaments this Christmas. <laughs> right. In hopes that so they'll ripen faster. That imagery and these metaphors of tree dressing are used a lot then in Amos's prophecies. And so it helps kind of the reader understand more of where he's coming from and why he's using these things. Because that's the world he lived in and that's what he knew. And, and it relates what he's saying directly to the poor. Yeah. Yeah. So Christopher, do you have anything else you want to point out about Amos in general as the prophet before we go into a few commentary on the text? Ben, my, my reading was like yours. The main focus of this text is the treatment of the poor specifically. You know, this is a time of peace. I think that's worth mentioning. It's a time of peace and prosperity, at least for some, right? That's Amos's mm. consideration is that some, the rich, are getting rich at the expense of the poor and that they're not caring for the poor. Remember, pure religion, right? True religion, pure religion has everything to do with taking care of the poor. And the needy. And in fact, in this book, we get that even God tells us he's not interested in all your pious performances, right? Whether you're singing hymns or performing rituals or sacrifices, he doesn't want any of that. That's not, that's not the concern. The concern is, again, the poor. His concern is for the poor. The prophet speaks for God in that sense. Righteousness and justice is what he is. Exactly. Yeah. We're talking about a form of social injustice here where it is, it is specified in the text. It's pretty clear that Amos is saying that the wealthy are taking advantage of the system to enrich themselves. Yeah. And there's some specifics on it too that had to do with some of the weights and measures, the way that they were applied among the people such that, you know, you weren't getting just exchanges. And so that was one of the problems with it. Yeah, that's pretty specific. That's one example. So Amos's full name would have been Amaziah or Amaziah, which includes the name of the Lord there. So Amos by itself just means like one who is supported, but Amaziah or Amaziah would mean the Lord supports. So that's just the etymology of the name, so to speak. 
But the first couple chapters, Amos is giving his indictment of the foreign nations, like Isaiah and Jeremiah did. I think, Christopher, you called it like the, the sprinkler head, right? That's just going in all directions and, and letting them have it. That's right. Yeah. All these nations that are mentioned had some sort of a treaty with Israel and Judah. And so the pronouncements against them are condemnations of a perceived breaking of this treaty. Because again, we've got the looming Assyria and the idea is, hey, these we should band together in order to repel this, or you have certain obligations to us, maybe not, maybe not necessarily an alliance like some of the other prophets talked about, but that these nations were not fulfilling their obligations uh, under some sort of treaty that the Lord himself would have been a witness to. There is a clue, a mention of some kind of covenant. I remember reading in the commentary is not really clear because the language is not used anywhere else in the Bible of this form of covenant that it may have something to do with some kind of treaty. The other thing, Ben, is, you know, the foreigners aren't just judged, you know, because they're Israel's enemies. There actually seems to be, again, in a move toward greater cosmopolitanism, we're starting to see God peek through the cracks again and showing himself as as the God of the whole earth, right? Not just of the Israelites. And, 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 And that includes the idea that they're not actually chosen, right? That in some sense, every people is chosen by God and every people has their own exodus. I'm saying exodus because it's the main theme of the scriptures. When I say the scriptures, I mean, it's the Bible, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, the Quran. It's the main theme in, in at least those three sacred texts across those three traditions, you know? And so it seems that there's a violation of some kind of norm or moral standard that's not to do with being, you know, Israel and and covenant with Yahweh, right? With with the Lord. So there seems to be some kind of international moral code now that's implied. And it made me think of Osama bin Laden, which is a name I haven't thought of in a long time. And I remember thinking at the time of his extrajudicial assassination that he should have stood trial, that one of the understandings of the constitution is that although it is written by Americans for Americans, that its principles apply beyond our borders in some sense, right? I really expected to see Osama bin Laden stand trial. I was disappointed mm-hmm. when he was extrajudiciously assassinated. Yeah, you know, the idea being that, hey, if these principles are good enough for this society, then the society should be able to apply those principles wherever it goes. I mean, one person I think who was commenting on this sort of a situation said, the rules of the Constitution don't apply to the borders, they apply to wherever the US government goes, because they're the rules that govern its existence and operations. And so, yeah, like you said, you know, you, you would expect it to abide by those, or you should expect, but can we really expect that anymore, Christopher? <laughs> well, you know, so the point being, you know, with the comparison to the book of Amos is that there are moral standards mm-hmm. that don't have to do with time and place, right? That, that we think of as applying across times and places. And some of them, you know, principles, right? Principles, as is taught in the CES manual, are these unchanging eternal ideas, right? But the applications of the principles can vary. So for example, 
marriage is thought of as an eternal principle. But what, what form it takes between one man and one woman, or one man and multiple women, or if it could be some other configuration, I don't know. It seems to be that it would be possible, considering that it hasn't always been in one configuration. And it reminds me of conversations I've had with evangelicals about biblical marriage, when I think, Biblical marriage? What is biblical marriage? Does this include visiting prostitutes on the corner, who, by the way, turn out to be your daughter-in-law? Does it include polygamy? What do we mean by that? And so the standard of what marriage means has changed over time, but marriage is a principle. Right. So in these verses here with these condemnations of these different nations, we get this idiom that comes up over and over again, and it says, for three and for four. And I thought it was worth mentioning that, again, this is an idiomatic expression that means more than enough. Okay, so it's saying that that these nations have have gone overboard, they've they've broken their promise, they've they've done it more than than they were supposed to. That was important to me because I it wasn't obvious in the translation of the text what that meant. I think that I'm not sure if Alter does anything with this, Christopher. I'm curious. But a good translator probably would have done something like translate that idiom or at least give us some better footnotes, which again, in the NRSV version that I have, there are good footnotes on that. So give me a verse, Ben. There's a bunch of these verses, but if you just start in chapter one, verse three, and then anytime he starts in with a condemnation of a new nation, yeah. then we're going to get this again in verse six, again. In verse 9, talking about Gaza and Tyre and the Ammonites and Edom, right? Yeah, so for with, with Altar, you get, For three trespasses of Damascus, and for four I will not turn it back. And it's okay. interesting because so you focused on the, the one language. idiom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you focused on the one idiom. I focused on the other. I will not turn it back. What do you uh, make of that, Ben? Well, I will not turn it back. To me, seems it's going to happen and I'm not going to change the consequences, something like that. Yeah, so I'm okay with that. The thing is, though, is that it is not specified. Right? Uh, what it is, uh, is not is left unspecified and perhaps deliberately, right? Maybe even ominously, as my, as my commentary puts it. But that, that's how Alter put it. Gotcha. But it would have to be something like retribution or wrath, right? Yes, yeah, these are the consequences of breaking the treaty as imposed by the Lord because he was a witness of this, right? And yeah. so this is going to happen. You're going to face the consequences of your unfaithfulness to this agreement, so to speak. We're going to get it later in in Obadiah that there's some difficult parts in the Hebrew, right? And so again here, sometimes the Hebrew of these prophets is difficult to translate. Yeah. And I see here that covenant of kinship that I mentioned, literally a covenant of brothers in verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. That again is unclear. Maybe a a political treaty violated by Tyre. Yeah. And then we do get, you know, in 6 through 8, we get accusations of forms of religious corruption, right? But it does seem to be less important to I was going to say to to Amos, but to to God, as as Amos expresses the, the the mind of God in this book, right? Then the treatment of the poor, and then in chapter two eleven, you get mention of the Nazarites, which I thought, you know, that wasn't surprising to me in connection with the Edomites. The only Nazarite mentioned in the Bible is what's his name, Samson. Samson, yeah. 
I think but, there you know, is this, another one, but that's definitely the one, the first one that comes to mind for me. He's the only one specifically named. Oh, by name. Okay, right. I got yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, but who, who are the Nazarites? Are these people who, quote unquote, separated or consecrated ones, literally, right? The Nazarites. Right, they have a particular that, lifestyle that they're supposed to live. Yeah. yeah, including a vow of abstinence from wine and strong drink. Mm-hmm. Samson had a little extra caveat that he couldn't cut his hair. And- yeah. One of the interesting things that came up for me in chapter three, Christopher, was this verse seven. I think if you ask pretty much any Latter-day Saint that has done their seminary scripture mastery or you know uh, missionary studies and stuff, if you ask them about the book of Amos, basically this may be the first thing or the only thing that they know about the book of Amos, at least I would say as of a few weeks ago, that would be what I would say. The verse is, the Lord God shall do nothing, save he shall reveal his secret to his servants, the prophets. Okay, So this is used heavily within our tradition and, and rhetoric concerning our view and doctrine about prophets, especially like in the restoration context. But what was fascinating about the commentary on this verse is that this phrase his servants, the prophets, is actually a common Deuteronomistic phrase. And the form of the verse within the text differs from the verses around it. And so as scholars are parsing this, they're thinking that this verse might have been a later addition to the text by the Deuteronomistic reformers. It's not clear exactly what their intention was, but the verse just doesn't really fit in the flow of the text and the the statements of it don't match the the theological rhetoric of the time of Amos. So, yeah, those Deuteronomistic reformers were pretty thorough. And you know, they're they're priests, they're protecting, right? They're conserving mm-hmm. tradition. That's what they do. In verses 1 through 2 of chapter 3, what's interesting to me about those verses is that you get, because Egypt is elect, and we've heard this in our own tradition too, that that therefore means that they have a greater responsibility, not just a privilege, right, but a responsibility. They're particularly accountable for their actions. And then my favorite verse, I I don't know if I've run into a favorite verse before in in the Hebrew Bible, but this is my new favorite verse if I have. (laughs) How about the one back... Some books ago, it's just like, everyone is stupid. <laughs> there was that one. Yeah. Maybe this one could tie for first place. Here we go. Amos 4.1. Hear this word, you cows. <laughs> it really does say cows. Well, you know, the King James Bible says kine. Kine. And that's, and that's yeah. true. That's cows. The problem is nobody knows that, right? So if you didn't know, kine yeah. or cows. Kine is that archaic general term for cattle, or, or we would say bovine. But yeah. <laughs> now, these cows are actually wealthy women. Mm-hmm. They're wealthy women of Samaria, and they're ridiculed as cows, and, and the judgment and the prophecy of punishment is against them. Now, I don't, I don't know that this is, I don't think it's particularly misogynistic. That's not how I would read it in context. It's just they're the wealthy women, right? They're the ones that are being accused of not caring for the poor. It was their responsibility, and they are not only shirking their responsibility, but they are, what does it say in in other places, grinding the face of the poor, right? Yeah. And this is epitomized in verse 1 by what they say to their husbands, right? They're they're guilty of this social injustice, and it really comes out. Next for me is chapter 5. Okay, 5 it is. Verses 21 through 25, and the Lord kind of goes on this rant 
about their sacrifices. He says, I despise your festivals, your sacrifices. The Lord is rejecting all of their outward practices because, he says, there's no righteousness and justice. They lack the inward substance. And Christopher, we've mentioned this multiple times. You you guys had a podcast on Latter-day Contemplation about the exoteric and the esoteric. These outward practices are devoid of any inward substance, and so the Lord is is rejecting them as meaningless. You know, to specify, Ben, it looks like Amos is saying to me, pretty. it's pretty clear, right? He's saying the evidence that your practices, your religious practices, whether it's sacrifices or even singing hymns, right, is hypocrisy because of the way you're treating the poor, mm-hmm. because you're not caring for the poor. Therefore, all of that is hypocrisy. Yeah, It's empty and meaningless. We hear that echoed in Alma in the Book of Mormon. I, I want to say chapter 34, I believe it's Amulek, and he's talking to the people. He says, you know, it doesn't matter. You, you can do all these things. You can pray and you can all of this stuff. But then if you turn away the poor, then all of that is as dross, he says. You know, you're counted as dross. It's, there's no substance to it if you're not actually caring for the poor. So that is very much an echo or similar theme, at least to exactly what Amos is saying here. Yeah. Here's another in chapter 5, verse 12. There's another example, a specific example of how the, the system is used to take advantage of the poor and pushing aside the needy and the gate. This is an example of using the legal process to take advantage of the poor. So verse 25 of chapter 5, Christopher, has a, an interesting way of phrasing something. And the commentary on this says something that when we discussed this beforehand, you thought was a little bit tenuous, but then we went to the altar translation and it translated it the same way. And so maybe there's something to the commentary. And it's this. In verse 25, it's a rhetorical question from the Lord. And he says, after all this discussion of sacrifices and saying that they lack righteousness and justice, he says, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? So again, this is a rhetorical question. And the commentary says that the implied answer to this question, you know, built within the rhetoric is no. And what's so interesting about that is this contradicts a bunch of other scriptures that, especially within Exodus and Numbers, as we have them today, that do state specifically that the Israelites performed sacrifices in the wilderness. And whereas this question here from the Lord is almost like it's saying, no, we didn't do that in the wilderness. And that wasn't something that happened until we got into the land. Now, there is a little bit of corroboration for this over in Jeremiah. If we look at Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, it kind of implies something similar. And so we wondered if there was something to this statement here, that there's some sort of contradiction going on between what the text says here versus what we saw in Exodus and Numbers. And Christopher, you kind of brought up, well, maybe this is another example of we've got some Deuteronomistic revision and maybe they missed a little part here in trying to maintain some consistency in their narrative. Not sure. Yeah. So these are guys who are really concerned with performing all the pious practices. And so they write back into the history as how it looks, right? That this was done when it wasn't necessarily the case that it was done. But at any rate, we have here God calling for justice and righteousness. Riley and I recently recorded an episode of Latter-day Contemplation, our sister podcast on justice 
as we sometimes do when we go into an idea, a concept like justice, we began by problematizing it. The What justice is, the question, what is justice, is one that philosophers have asked and answered and argued for That's how Socrates millennia. starts off, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. What is justice is a big question. But I think, you know, I can give at least an answer, an example, right, from, from what we see here in verse 24. You get, well, in 21 through 27, in verse 24, Amos is always talking about justice and righteousness together. He mentions both of them. So we could see justice as establishing what is right and of the person in the right via fair legal proceedings, right, in accordance with the will of the Lord, And then righteousness, we could see as a quality of life, the way that we treat one another, right? And relationship with others in a community that gives rise to justice. Mm -hmm. So righteousness and and justice are connected in that way. And that's per, you know, that's one definition. I think you can read that from these verses. And it's according to my HarperCollins study Bible, you know, the NRSV study Bible. So I thought that was a good reading and a valid answer for what is justice. There, are, there yeah, that's could be others. Yeah. Within my mind, the conceptualization is that righteousness seems to be more of like an internal, individual, moral position, maybe with respect to God, but it's it's more of like a private thing. Whereas justice to me seems more like a, a public interrelational thing of a societal condition. Yeah, that's pretty much, you know, as I read it, right? Righteousness okay. is something that you do, right? Yeah. And justice is something that arises when arises everyone in the of, community does the same, right? Yeah, when when, yeah. when all are righteous and they're dealings with one another, then justice arises in society. Yeah. Because yeah, justice a is a, a public concept, yeah. So after we get in chapter six, after all these judgments, right, about self-indulgence and the grinding of the faces of the poor to borrow from elsewhere in the Bible, you get an announcement of judgment. And it's not even a call to repentance, right? It's just, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what you've done. Now, this is what you're going to get, right? It's sort of this karmic pronouncement, right? And so the, the wealthy and the, the notables, as we might read them, are accused of being arrogant and self-satisfied. And the, the, the political class is accused of indulgence with rich food and drink and entertainment and not really concerning themselves with, with the res publica, right? The public matters, the affairs of the people. And you even get bragging from Israel. If you go to verse 13, Ben, you get bragging on the, on the part of Israel about all its military conquests as if they were achieved through their own strength. And you get some good puns. You know, if you look at sometimes, you know, if we, if we aren't reading in the original language, we miss the puns. If you have a good study Bible, they'll, they'll show up in the commentary mm-hmm. that at least get brought up and explained. But you have some good puns on, on symbols of strength used sarcastically some good satire. And so in the end, the Lord promises that he's going to bring some unnamed enemy who's going to oppress the people from one end of the earth to the other. And that's chapter six. So the thing I wanted to point out in chapter seven, Christopher, was this verse that I alluded to previously, and it's verse 14. Amos says, I am no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. So again, here we have this insight into who Amos is, his background, 
why it is he's concerned with what he is. Herdsman, dresser of sycamore trees, again, this places him within the poor class and explains more of his concern for the plight of the poor. Do you have anything else on seven? I don't know if I have a segue, but here we go. (laughs) Ben, there's a fire mentioned in verse four, which I think I want to just bring it out because I don't want the listener to miss the catastrophic or cataclysmic nature of this fire. This isn't just an ordinary fire, right? This is it devours the great deep. So it's not just the kind of natural fire that could burn the fields, right? That's part of it. You could have a wildfire, a natural event burns the fields, but this is actually burning the groundwater beneath the earth. So this is this is a cataclysmic fire. That kind of reminds me of Elijah when he has the sacrifice off with the priests of Baal, right? And then the fire comes down and consumes everything, right? It's just an all-consuming fire. Yeah. It reminds me of the cataclysmic fire and the Stoic physics. In Stoic physics, you know, everything comes from a conflagration of fire and returns in a conflagration through the same fire and the whole world, the whole cosmos comes about again and everything that happened happens over and over and over again. And that's sort of the physics of the of the Stoics. So these are ancient conceptions of cosmology. They show up in different cultures and antiquity. In verses 10 through 17, there's something I really wanted to go into, Ben, and that is that there's a conflict here between prophet and priest. Mm. And so there's a distinction to be made between a prophet and a priest. And this is something that came up in another episode I recorded with Riley over on our sister podcast, Latter-day Contemplation, with guest Jana Spangler. And Jana distinguished, as Richard Rohr did for her, between a prophet and a priest. Priests are protectors of tradition, of institutions. They are conservative. They are making sure everyone is following the rules, crossing the T's, dotting the I's. Obedience is, is their concern, right? This is priestcraft, right? This is what priests do. Whereas prophets are actually the ones on the margin questioning the tradition, not just upholding the tradition, not defending it or apologizing for it, but actually bringing it into question. The whole edifice may need to come down. We may need to rethink this whole thing. You're performing all the pious practices, but you're ignoring the poor, or you're ignoring that the wealthy are taking advantage of the poor, that they're even using the legal system to do it. That's an important distinction. And that shows up here in this chapter too. It reminds me of the interplay between the chief priests and the prophet John the Baptist in the New Testament. Obviously that you know then plays into Jesus, but that's exactly what's going on there, right? You have these priests, and they have to go out to the wilderness. That's the edge of the civilization, or even beyond the edge of the civilization, to hear what John is saying, and he's telling them that they are corrupt, right? And that things need to change. That's pretty much it, Ben. That's the idea. That's the idea. We also get in chapter 7, Ben, that the Lord relented or repented. The Bible's always telling us about how God changes his mind, which is kind of fun yeah. because the theologians tell us that God doesn't change his mind. Yeah. And you know, it may be that God doesn't change his mind, and, and then we can question our prophetology. But one way or the other, we have some questions to ask ourselves, right? It's, I'm reminded of Desi Arnaz. Lucy, do you have some splaining to do, right? <laughs> 
So there's something that has to be explained here, whether it's our prophetology or whether it's our theology, one or the other. So we have to read, you know, in some sense, critically. We have to keep an open mind, but not so open that our minds will fall out, right? It's interesting after what I said about prophets and priests, you know, that in the end of chapter 7, and I'm not drawing any conclusions, I'm just pointing out something interesting here, is that we get from Amos himself in verse 14, he says, I am no prophet. Yeah. (laughs) Or it could be translated, I was no prophet. That's interesting. I don't know what to make of that. I'll pass over it in silence. Well, I mean, it, it is similar to some other prophetic examples where the Lord calls them and they're like, I don't know how to talk. I'm not a prophet, right? He he doesn't feel like he has been brought up in the, the prophetic tradition. Some prophetic traditions were hereditary in some sense. And so yeah. Amos is like, I don't even know how to be a prophet. So that's not what I am. And then there's the one coming up who runs away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. We're going to get to Jonah next week. The, that's the That's the most strident rejection of the call to adventure, right? The Jonah in the book of Jonah, you know, it's just like, very odd that he's called a prophet at all. Just compare you, you compare to the other prophets in the in the prophetic tradition, so to speak. And so, yeah, that'll be an interesting discussion. Yeah, we'll get to that. So, in verse fifteen, though, we get that Amos is really asserting his authority against the authority of the priest. So we're back to again that that conflict between priest and prophet. He's he just said, "I am no prophet," and now he's asserting the authority of a divine calling against the authority of the priest. So that's good, healthy, um, you know, tension. I think yes, between I prophets agree. and priests. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There needs to be that that tension. It actually is good for society. Starting off in chapter eight, Christopher, we have a delicious little pun. Having come across multiples of these in previous books, I was able to recognize it as some sort of a pun, even just listening to it in English. And this is because he mentions, "Hey, go get something." And then he tells him this symbolizes this other thing. And these two things are really nothing alike at all. And so I was like, okay, I am almost certain this is going to be a pun in Hebrew. And sure enough, you look it up. He says, get a basket of fruit, which in Hebrew is kayitz. And then he says, this is symbolizing the end of things. And the end being kets. And so these are very similar in their sound. We've got a pun going on here. This happened with a bunch of other prophets, and we had it with Ezekiel and like almond trees, right? The idea being here, he's supposed to look at something, and the word for that thing makes him think about another thing that the Lord wants him to prophesy about, which in this case is the end. So you have a basket of fruit, and the word for that is similar to the word for the end. How about that? At the end of the podcast, can we say a basket of fruit? <laughs> so now we have that we're, uh, the prophet is calling out Israel's corrupt business practices. These corrupt business practices oppress the needy and the poor. By the way, we get needy and poor. They're synonyms. They are synonyms. But it could just be using synonyms for emphasis. This is done a lot in Semitic languages, right? Arabic does the same thing. You, yeah. you use a synonym to emphasize the concept. But it does show up a lot, you know, the needing and the poor in one verse after the other. The Lord is going to intervene, he says, against the land. This is the, I believe this is edits, right? This is the same word that's used for the whole land was flooded. I mean, the whole earth was flooded, right? Yeah. Edits means land. It means earth. It doesn't really mean planet, right? It's not about the cosmos, 
yeah. the, the whole order of things, the whole universe, or the world as we call it in English. Well, you know, in English, Earth is capitalized because it's the name for the planet, right? But a little e Earth actually just means the dirt, the soil. And so. Yeah. Some would say, say soil, not dirt, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning of chapter nine, Amos sees the Lord standing, right? So this is an, another anthropomorphization of the Lord that we get periodically. And this is one of those examples where I might have expected to see angel written in there, right? Christopher in front of the Lord. But here, that's not there. Amos is actually seeing the Lord in this verse, not an angel of the Lord. Yeah, and as Dan McClellan has argued, and Dan McClellan is a Latter-day Saint working for the church in scripture translation, right? He's argued that a lot of times when we see the angel of the Lord, that the angel of, which just takes one word in, in Hebrew, is just added in front of the Lord. Yeah, to help theologically compensate for the fact that it seems like a lot of people are seeing God, right? Right, right. So it looks like the text may have originally read that someone saw God, and then someone changes it to say an angel of God. Yeah. The verses 7 through 10 of chapter 9, I think were probably the most interesting to me of the book of Amos. Okay. And they say this, I'm going to go to this in the NRSV. To help lead up to it, I'm actually going to start in verse 6. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth? Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth? The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Ethiopians to me, O people of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir? This is quite a statement. For the Lord to say, hey, you're just like the Ethiopians. I did the same thing for them that I did for you in bringing you out of Egypt. Or you're just like the Philistines. Or you're just like the Arameans. Man, this this must feel in some ways like a slap in the face <laughs> to the Israelites who seem to conceptualize of themselves here as this people with a special claim or privilege. But this scripture kind of contradicts other scriptures that imply that special place of Israel among the peoples of the world. And it suggests that God has acted similarly with other peoples in delivering them, just like he did Israel out of Exodus. Again, this Christopher is like what you were saying, seems a little more cosmopolitan going on here. The Lord loves all of his children, or at least there are peoples that are also important to him, not just the Israelites. And so this statement here is saying, hey, you know, people think that you have some special relationship or unique relationship, turns out, hey, I actually have dealt with other peoples in the same way I've dealt with you. You know, it reminds me of Carly Simon's song, You're So Vain, right? So yeah, I've been giving all these prophecies mm -hmm. to you and you're so vain, you probably think they're all about you, right? <laughs> that, yeah. I think we fall into that trap, right? And, and you get some nationalism that comes out well, it comes out a lot in the Bible, but it'll definitely come out in Jonah. We'll see that in Jonah, which has this international character, but this nationalistic behavior. And that's kind of interesting. There's an Ethiopian sacred text from the 14th century, you know, now that you bring up Ethiopia as, as an example, and that's just one people that, that are mentioned. And we know that God is, is speaking to people across time and space, right? Uh, in all times, uh, across all time and, and in all places. 
When you say 14th century, Christopher, are you saying BC? No, no. There's a 14th century text called the Kebranagast, which I had seen at the bookstore. And it's from, you know, a series of sacred texts that are, that's published that I knew and trusted. And yet I didn't pick it up. He said, it, said it was a Rastafarian uh, religious text. And I oh, thought, okay, that's interesting. But, but then I picked it up and looked more closely at it and found out that while it is a Rastafarian religious text, its roots are actually Ethiopian. And that it actually deals with Solomon. And it deals with creation in the most beautiful way. Can I just read a little bit from the beginning of it? Sounds great. So the Kebra Nagas actually deals with Sheba, right? As shows up in the book of Solomon or Song of Solomon. So here's from the Kebra Nagas from the very beginning on earth. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together fashioned Zion, which is the kingdom of heaven. And they said, let us make man in our likeness. The Son said, I will wear the body of Adam. And the Holy Spirit said, I will dwell in the heart of the righteous. And the Father said, I will become man, and I will abide in everything I create. I will dwell in flesh as well as seed and plant. And I will dwell in air as well as water. And I will dwell in earth. Now in the days thereafter, through the pleasure of the Father, there came the second Zion, whose name was Jesus Christ. But let us speak of how it was in the beginning. And so that's just the beginning of the text. Interesting. Now we come to the book of Obadiah, the shortest book in the Hebrew Bible. So Obadiah means servant of the Lord. This is equivalent to some other names. Christopher, you were saying Abdullah, very common Arabic name as well within the Muslim tradition. Same, same idea. Thing. There are all these names in the Bible of these characters that tell us who or what they are, more than they tell us this is the label we put on this person to call them by, right? Yeah. So well, it's it, possible they were called that, you know, sure. in their lifetime, but it's also possible it's just a title that was applied to a person or a caricature of a person later. Yeah. And this is important, I think, because oftentimes there's at least a pun or some deeper meaning. If it was someone's name, that's fine. There's still a meaning behind why that name is used for that character in this book. And so it's it's important to get at that, I think, to get a deeper understanding of the text. And sometimes these names are hidden, or the meaning of these names are hidden by your translation. And so that's why it's helpful to have right. some commentary to get a, a good study Bible and, and read the commentary. And sometimes it's still hard to see. What's the, there's one character that, that shows up, Hamelech, right? Remember him? Yes. Hamelech just means the king. Right. And so the son of Hamelech, right? Well, that's just the son of the king. <laughs> yeah. And here or we have Himelech, which it just means my father is a king. Right. <laughs> the, the same relationship seen from the other way around. And here we have a prophet who, surprise, surprise, is a servant of the Lord. How about that? Yeah. I mean, Obadiah isn't a particularly unique name, even if it is just a name per se, you know, it could be a title as well. So there's going to be other people in the text that are named Obadiah. Doesn't mean it was this person. In fact, we don't really even know who this Obadiah is that, that wrote this book or is attributed to. It's, he's basically anonymous. We know next to nothing about the person himself. He's right up there with the author of Jonah and the author of Job, right? There you go. <laughs> yeah. The main theme here of the book of Obadiah to me was basically anti-Edom. Right, it's a it's a pronouncement of judgment upon the nation of Edom because they have betrayed Israel. 
They confiscated lands that belonged to Israel. But then what happens is Edom is used later symbolically to describe any nation who opposes God. Right. So you get kind of a symbolic Mount Zion versus Mount Esau, right? Yeah. Obadiah is giving us a utopian future as he imagines it in which the dispossessed will take possession of those who dispossess them. Poetic. And there'll be saviors, right? On Mount Zion. And there'll be a judge on Mount Esau. And the kingdom or the kingship will be the Lord's. It's interesting because this utopian future is not with the Davidic king. No, it's with human saviors, right? Mm -hmm. We can compare this with the judges. We see the same thing in the Book of Mormon, right? When you have this period of the reign of the judges. The text of Obadiah relates the land to Esau, as we were saying. And this seems to be very much tied up in the color red. Back in Genesis, the character of Esau, Jacob's brother, was named Edom because ostensibly he was covered in in red hair. And it could have been that this is like an etiological explanation of, you know, the origin of the name Edom must have gone back to a person who was red in some way and to explain the redness of the land. So if you go there, you know, Southern Jordan, that type of area is very red rock. It's actually similar to kind of Southern or Southeastern Utah with the, the, the color of the rock and the formations even. And down there in southern Jordan, we find Petra, which is this ancient Nabataean city that was carved right into the sides of the rock. It's possibly the most spectacular thing I've ever seen in my life. Definitely really right up there. And any of the pictures that I ever looked at didn't do it justice. It's just amazing. You know, it's funny, the the most famous picture, I think, even if you've at least seen the Indiana Jones movie that that has Petra in it. And you don't know this unless you've been there, but the picture that you get is right when you come out of the slot canyon. And it does look just like in the picture, but you don't get the same experience looking at a picture because you didn't walk through the slot canyon and yeah. turn a corner and, boom, and it there it is. And yeah. This thing. yeah, it's incredible. You know, some current cutting-edge Quranic scholarship has it that the milieu of the Quran isn't in Arabia, but in Petra. And it's controversial, highly controversial, but some interesting ideas coming out of Quranic scholarship about Petra. Yeah. So one of the main reasons that seems to lock down that we are talking about Southern Jordan, Nabataean civilization, maybe even Petra itself here in Obadiah with with reference to Edom and Esau is verse three. It says, your proud heart has deceived you you that live in the clefts of the rock, right? And that's exactly what Petra is. It's city carved right in the clefts of the rock. And you go and you can hike around all this place. And, you know, my wife and I were hiking. We kind of climbed up on a ledge and went around the corner and we looked out into this valley and it was just just completely covered and full of these caves that had been carved out of the sandstone for people to live in. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. So over in verse seven, Christopher, we have something that, after I was reading it and then seeing the footnotes and stuff, I just, I laughed for quite a while. And let me see if I can kind of posit this well. Here in this verse, we have this statement, all your allies have deceived you. They have driven you to the border. Your confederates have prevailed against you. Those who ate your bread have set a trap for you. There is no understanding of it. So especially this last phrase, there's no understanding of it. I went in the footnotes and commentary on this verse, say the Hebrew of this verse is difficult. 
In other words, <laughs> the translation isn't necessarily clear on this. It's really difficult to parse this text and give a, a sensical translation. And so all the time we see these footnotes, Christopher, that have said, meaning of Hebrew, uncertain. And I just thought it was hilarious that the translation of this verse actually ends with, there is no understanding of it. And this is sort of an homage to the fact that oh, meaning of Hebrew uncertain and the translation of the text is literally, there's no understanding of it, or we don't know what this means. <laughs> I posited a scenario in pre-show discussion, Ben, that you have a, a translator and a scribe separately, right? And the, yeah. the, the translator dictates to the scribe and he says, the meaning of this is uncertain or whatever it was you read. Uh, I and, don't and understand this. <laughs> I don't understand this. And the scribe just writes it down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no understanding this part. But that happens a lot in the Bible. And so we have to have some kind of epistemological humility when we read it. And then there's the question, I don't know, we've been dancing around this question for almost a year now as we've gone through this text. We're coming to the end. Should you learn Hebrew and Greek? Joseph Smith said yes with his actions, right? Actions speak louder than words. Brigham Young said no, and he actually said it, right? He said no. So take your pick, Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. Well, he certainly could, but we also have tools available to the common person, just readily available, uh, much more than people have had before. So you can go to Bible Hub, and without having to actually study Hebrew, you can go look up all of this stuff and and have maybe a more instant and better grasp than if you spent a long time studying it yourself. There's word studies, right? That's something we've talked about on previous episodes, maybe both podcasts. And we do in Come Follow Me study group, we often look into these things, right? Do word studies and I teach people how to do this, right? You don't have to know Hebrew or Greek to look into certain words and compare translations. And there's there are tools, like Ben said, Bible Hub, yeah. I, you know, I just Google these things. I Google the the chapter and verse I want with the word interlinear, and then Bible Hub just comes up first. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I used to have bookmarks. Google has obliviated my need for bookmarks. Christopher, do you have anything else you want to add about the Book of Obadiah? Just verse seventeen, maybe verse twenty-one too. So verse seventeen, those that escape. The, the Hebrew word could be translated as a remnant, and a remnant is something that we've dealt with thematically. Mm. I, I hope that in previous episodes when we've talked about the remnant, that our understanding of it has been clear. I don't think it's necessarily the kind of, again, we're not reading these prophecies as end time prophecies, so therefore there's no end time conception of a remnant that we're dealing with. We're reading them as the, the prophets prophesying, you know, predicting the, the exile are seeing the writing on the wall to borrow directly from the Bible, right? The terms. And they are telling what's about to happen. These things are fairly obvious according to what's happening around them. And they're just paying attention. Of course, the people who are living riotously and, and you know, all is well in Zion. I said earlier, this was a period of, of peace and prosperity. And they're not paying attention to what's about to happen to them which is the peace and prosperity is going to end. They're going to be conquered and taken into exile. And the prophets are seeing this because they're paying attention to the signs and they're, and they're mentioning them. And so this remnant that we, that we speak of is not something to do with, am I even mis, misremembering or misreading this, Ben? I'm thinking of the rapture. 
Is the remnant having something to do with the rapture and this sort of apocryphal? Apocryph- it becomes renegotiated time. as right. that within you know Christian eschatological right. conceptualization, but you know it's not always done that way, right? It, it is commonly used within multiple contexts. You know, obviously, originally, and especially the Book of Mormon uses this a lot, and it is talking specifically about the people that are going to return back to Jerusalem and build it back up. You know, Ezra Nehemiah types rebuilding the temple, second temple period. But then, you know, as the Jewish history progresses, we then get the destruction of the second temple. And then, you know, we, like Isaiah, we look to these times when it's like, okay, these prophecies don't seem to have been fulfilled. Are we, when is this going to happen? Are we looking towards a much later date or do we need to reinterpret how it was that these were fulfilled or were these conditional? You know, there's a lot of questions there. And so within Christian, maybe even fundamentalist or traditional Christian ideas of eschatological timelines, you're going to take all of these things and say, hey, if they haven't happened, they're going to happen within these last days. And they're always about to happen, right? Like it's, or, you know, the end is near type of thing. And they've always been about to happen for 2000 years. And so take that for, for however you want it. I don't necessarily mean it sarcastically. It's just in order to renegotiate and adopt these things scripturally, we're always having to look for scenarios where they fit. Yeah. And remember that the end is in fact, always near for you. And it and it and it could come, and you don't know when it's going to come. It comes like a thief in the night. That's true for you, and that's what matters, right? To me, what matters in reading these texts, right, is what does this have to do with me, right? Now, of course, if it's about me, it's about my righteousness that we're dealing with. If we're reading the prophets right here, and therefore it's about a just society, by extension, right? Out of righteous living comes just society. Ben, that's all I've got for. Obadiah. Me too. We got Jonah and Micah coming next, which is an interesting combination because Jonah is very short, but we will have a lot to say about it. And Micah is quite a bit longer, and I don't know that we'll have a whole lot to say about it. (laughs) I don't know that we'll have time to talk about Micah. We have to talk about Jonah. (laughs) We really do. We could spend a long time on Jonah. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Please like and share. Let us know if you have any comments. We've got our Facebook group. So you can find us on online. You can find us on Google. You can find us on Facebook. The podcast is on all the platforms. Tell your friends. If you want to comment on a particular episode, you can do that on Facebook when the episode is shared there. You can do it on YouTube where there are comments per episode. If you have comments about the podcast in general, Apple Podcasts is a great place to do that. It helps people find the podcast. It's probably the most popular platform for listening. I prefer Stitcher personally, but... There are others. My wife listens on Spotify. We're on all the platforms and on all the social media. Aren't there other, there's Instagram and things like this, right? We're putting out, I share quotes with with our social media team. Thanks, Bethany, for putting those out there. I know there's an Instagram account, but I'm not on Instagram, so I don't know how active that is. So the Facebook group where people actually join the group and you can have discussion and post things is called Latter-day Nonviolence, Pacifism, and Peace Studies. The Facebook page where you can actually message us as an organization and then sometimes podcasts, links and stuff are posted on that page is just called Latter-day Peace Studies. Yeah, and we do get questions and, and answer all of those questions. The latest question was about our Come Follow Me study group Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. That's 8 to 9 Pacific. 
there's a link to join that meeting posted every Sunday morning right before the meeting starts. And once you grab that link, it's good for every Sunday. Again, thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Christopher Hurtado for Latter-day Peace Studies. And I'm Ben Peterson.